This podcast is proud to be part of the TalkSport Fan Network. TalkSport. Powered by fans. The TalkSport Fan Network is proudly supported by McDelivery, bringing you the food you love. McDelivery brings a top-tier lineup of food right to your door. No matter the results, you'll always be winning with McDelivery. Order now on the McDonald's app and you'll get rewards points delivered too. So that ordering today means some tasty rewards for tomorrow. Only via app at participating restaurants. 18 plus rewards registration required. Points only on menu items, delivery fee and terms apply. See mcdonalds.com. The TalkSport Fan Network is proudly teaming up with Free for Mental Health Awareness Week this year. As football fans, we often pride ourselves on knowing everything, from which substitution can turn the game around to the quickest route home to beat the crowds. However, when it comes to discussing feelings with our friends, we might not always feel as confident. That's why we're here to equip you with the right tools so you can reach out to those who can help. If your mates are struggling, let them know that the Samaritans are free to call on 116123. That's 116123. They are there to listen without judgment or pressure, 24-7, 365 days of the year. Let's all take a moment to talk more than football. This week on RVER, sponsored by Progressive Insurance. I'm sorry, I can't operate on that vehicle. But doctor, you took an oath. That RV, it's my son's RV. Oh, doctor, isn't there anything you can do? I'm not a miracle worker, Sheila. I'm an RV surgeon, trained to save the lives of large injured recreational vehicles, which is definitely a real profession. When your RV really needs saving, Progressive has you covered. See if you could save with a leader in RV insurance. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates covered subject to policy terms. On August 25th, I'm the most brutal, vicious, ruthless champion that's ever been. The most anticipated original series is here. You may know Tyson. You're the heavyweight champion of the world, young, rich, and black. But do you know Mike? The minute you get too big, they gotta cut you down. Starring Trevante Rhodes. Um, I am Mike. And Harvey Keitel. They'll love you as much as they fear you. Now I'm really gonna have some fun. Mike, series premiere August 25th, only on Hulu. Hi, welcome. This is a very special edition again, obviously, of the mini-series for uh, Brian King's new autobiography called The Lion's King. Um, Today we are joined by three special guests. We've got Brian King, uh, we've got uh, Jim Murray, and we've got Mark Howard. Um, Mark is a writer, um, I think probably, no doubt, knowing Jim. Jim's probably had um, a bit to play in there and probably uh, a bit to play with getting this book off, um, getting this book started, shall we say. So let's go in with the first question and we go to, um, we go to Jim first, I suppose. Um, how did this come about? Well, you could almost say that the book started way back in the 1980s because what I did is I actually 
when I was re- when I was actually researching uh, Mill Lines of the South, I was thinking there's so many great stories here, and at some stage I would love to publish histories of you know of Millwall players. And so the, the the idea of bringing out books about Millwall players comes from the mid '80s. Kingy has always struck me as being an, an amazing possibility for for the very very good reason that he holds so many records. And he was there. He played through such an amazing era in the club's history. And also, I discovered uh, I already, already had a kind of a rough idea. But when it was uh, Kitchy's uh, funeral, um, Kingy gave a eulogy, and I was sitting next to John Seisman. And I said to Seizy afterwards, "I said, you know what? I've got to do a book with with Kingy because there's there's something about him." And I had a word with uh, with Brian about it, and I said, "Brian, we've got, we've got to do this. We've just got to do this book." And that was a few years ago. It's taken a few years, and I had to find the right people. I couldn't do it because I'm too busy. Not through COVID, but I, I'm I'm basically <laughs> so my parrot wants to have a word about this as well. Uh, <laughs> take him, take him through. You better take him through. Um, I was thinking, a couple of roast potatoes and a bit of cranberry <laughs> sauce myself. But <laughs> he's excited. Uh, it's the, it's the thought of watching Millwall against Reading. It's just got to. So I, I I thought right, I've got to find the right kind of person to do this. And I've known Mark for a little while. He's he's a superb writer. He's hugely into football, and. What you're doing when you're doing a book, it's like having a football team. You you got to build the right team, and so I wanted to build a team. I, I wanted to have Kingy. I wanted to have the writer. I wanted to have me, and have that triangulation of me knowing the history, Kingy being there, being the raconteur, and Mark being able to get Kingy's personality on paper. He was one of the few people I thought of who I thought would absolutely get Kingy. And in all fairness, you know, me and Mark have a bit of a laugh together, but in all fairness, I think he's done the most extraordinary job. It is, it's Kingy in print. It is him talking, but it's got, it's, it's Mark's brilliant translation and it's such a fantastic read. So I'm, I'm very, very, very proud of this because it's taken so many years to make it happen. So, um, to you, King, I mean, what was your thoughts when you were initially approached about this? Well, obviously you think, well, surely, why me? Because um, just an ordinary player as far as I was concerned, but I, I wasn't playing for an ordinary club. And and when I look back over the years, I suppose supporters are special. And I've met Jim over the years. I met him 20-odd um, years ago. And um, Millwall's a love for him as it is for me. And he suggested it and um, he outlined it and he invited me up to his offices where I went. And um, I arrived at Banbury and was told to look look for a man with a hat, a Fandora hat, <laughs> which Jim arrived in the car park with his Millwall number plated jag and um, he ain't got a hat on. <laughs> but, but I think the Millwall, the Millwall number plate certainly give it away. And we went to his office and we discussed. First thing he said to me was, can you write it? I said, are you having a laugh or what? 
Um, I can do a lot of things, but sitting actually writing a book, I don't think I've got the patience for that. Um, he said, well, I've got a fella who I'll introduce you to. He's going to call you. And I think you and him will be able to hit it off with, with the book and the stories. And sure enough, we did. Um, never met Mark before until two years ago. And he, uh, I think he's interpreted far better than I ever thought anybody would. And um, I have to congratulate him on that. And I also have to congratulate Jim on coming up with the idea because without these two, I'd still be hidden away in Norway somewhere and thinking maybe, maybe. I have to I have to agree with both what you're saying, and hopefully Neil, um, in a in a little while, will give his thoughts on it. I mean, we we're lucky enough to have obviously read a few um, chapters early, and um, can't wait to read the rest of the book. To be fair, but the chapters we've read, it does it does come across like you're sitting there re- you you're sitting there telling the story, um, King, and it, you know you. And probably to you, Martin, and and we're coming to you with, with how this works as a set. But I think some of the stories in there come across as if you're sitting in a pub with that person, and he's you know he's he's reminiscing. I mean, we were lucky enough to do obviously a show with Brian and, and David Ford and um, and uh, Brian Horn um, last week, um, and the stories that were coming out there, reading the book, just just comes across like that you're it's as if you're sitting in front listening to what king is going to say and, he, and he's telling you the story as it goes so is that your style of writing as as a as normal or did you bring in new skills or did, did you try something different with this or is that just your your normal way you write well i'm, I'm a newspaper man uh, as a you know, throughout my career uh, and obviously that that entails being quite succinct quite concise and uh, writing to a, a short length so this was this was a different challenge that's for sure um and uh, I, mean, I, I go back to reading football autobiographies and i'm sure we, you know, we, we've all enjoyed reading football autobiographies but if you get a bad one i feel it comes across as quite wooden um and i was quite disappointed i mean my hero growing up um was a goalkeeper john burridge um and you know such a colorful fella and to read his autobiography, I, I found quite disappointing because it, it it didn't spend time in in any way discussing it to any great depth, and it, it just seemed written for him. Um, and I wanted to make sure that it wasn't just a question of Brian did this, then Brian did that, and then Brian did that, because I think it's too easy to to switch people off. And uh, but it was it was. It was quite a challenge. It was quite a challenge, and it, and it has taken this amount of time. And uh, and again, it goes back to Jim, allowing the amount of time to get it right, and uh, I think insisting between the whole team that we do get it right and, and we make it as evocative and as colourful as possible. Because you know, King is a great raconteur, as Jim was saying. He's got that many stories, and it's uh, a fantastic time in English football's history, I think, and certainly for Millwall as well. You know, with the seventy-one, seventy-two season. And some of the great characters and legends that were around at that time, and I think to do that justice, you know, you, you can't just tell the story as this happened and this happened. No, I agree. I well, mean, Neil, can I just say one thing there? There, there was a, a reason also why I had great confidence in Mark doing the job because we both started our careers working at news agencies, 
you know, at press agencies. And when you're at a press agency, you learn to write uh, for the quality papers, you, you learn to write for the tabloids, and you learn to write for television and radio. You have to learn different skills. And from a very, very young age in, in your writing career, you learn how to mold. So you learn, if you're going to get someone's personality, you learn how to do that. And not all writers can do that. And, and Mark and I have that similar uh, quality. And that's why I, I trusted him and knew he would get this right because he had that that training, which not many people outside the industry particularly know about. I mean, uh, to, to would say... You agree with this, Mark? Would you agree with this? I, I, I think, actually, when we first got on, I first met Jim when I rang him for a quote about whiskey. And we ended up chatting on the phone and we both worked out that we, we were both at the Daily Star in Glasgow at different times. But what a, what a load of fun it was to work at the Daily Star in the old days when you really were allowed, you know, the shackles were off and uh, you could do some exciting things in newspaper terms and uh, most of them legal. But we, we, had, a, we had a great time and we, that, that's how we, we ended up and we've known each other 10 years now. Yeah. I mean, on the, on the newspaper side of it and all that, I'm going to pass the, the baton over to Neil, being obviously yeah. what Neil does for a living as well is, is the same as you bottom too. So I think Neil would be in a better position to be able to answer some of those points you've raised. Neil? Yeah, I've got to say that it's a brilliant book, superbly, superbly written, and I agree with Mark. Everything that he says, I've read the John Burridge book, and it was more about I moved to this club, I moved to that club, I moved to the other club. And you can tell a well-written autobiography because it draws out the stories. I, you were like, you were like Mickey, I've read two or three chapters of this book, and I read them in an evening because you just couldn't put it down. Stories about Harry Cripps chasing Johan Cruyff around a pitch to kick him <laughs> and things like that. Yeah, well, those things just aren't... Yeah, they're not known or they're forgotten about, and you've managed to draw that out, and it shows. It really is a brilliant book, and it shows the newspaper okay. training. Yeah, well, I go back to, I think, my first job on the national newspaper was on the Daily Sport. <laughs> in the late eighties, early nineties, yeah, I mean, you could write anything you wanted. <laughs> yeah, mate, I could tell you some stories about some of the about some of the models that they used to get through there to put into hotel lobbies to try and tempt rich Arabs into pulling them and things like that. It's just mind blowing time. So I know where Jim and Mark are coming from. It's just, it, yeah, it's a glorious way, but it does actually teach you how to write, teach you how to write very, very to the point. And that's yes. what biography. Yeah. But this is what this autobiography does. It's very succinct and very to the point and the stories come out and it shows. I'm going to start with one, try, one, one story which sounds like a tabloid spread. How the hell does Brian King, Millwall goalkeeper, drive a tube? Sorry? <laughs> How does Brian, Brian King, Millwall goalkeeper, Millwall's number one, drive a tube past Shadwell and then miss the station? Well, I can tell you, it was a very early, it was a very early time in my career, and... As I was saying before, when you travel with Bobby Hunt at that time, he was he was hilarious. I mean, he used to walk up to people at Liverpool Street Station and just reading, somebody would be reading a paper and he'd lean over their shoulder and say, 
you know, in that distinct sort of Hugh Laurie spyway, the fishing boats will be in at 11 and then walk off. And this bloke will be wandering around thinking, what the bloke, what the bloke? And he'd look up, and then, of course, the bloke would look at me and think, I'm in it as well. <laughs> what fishing boat? Now, listen, mate, I've got nothing to do with it. We're, we're, on, our way to, we're on our way to work. So we would get on the train at Liverpool Street, Allgate East, Whitechapel, off at Whitechapel, and there was a couple... There was one Indian guy who was um, who was a Millwall supporter, and I mean a real Millwall supporter he was, who used to look after the station downstairs, the one that was the East London line. And we get down there, and we always have a chat about Millwall, what's going on, what's going to do this. And as we wait for the train, he's gone, oh, it's old Eric. He said, Eric, um, he's, he's Millwall mad. You've got to say hello to him. Well, where is he? He said he's driving the train. So we said, um, oh, right, I'll so he hangs out the door there and he says, come on, lads, come up with me here. You can stand up here with me. So Bobby Hunt then comes up with the thing. Eric, do you remember me, mate? He said, um, no. He said, um, you let me drive a train about four months ago. Oh, yes, he said. The boy Hunt, he said, Bobby Hunt, Colchester. Yeah, I remember you. He said, he said well, let Kingy have a go then. So he said, you think you'll be all right with it? You think you'll be all right with it? I mean, it's an underground train here. Not, the only time I've been on an underground train is to sit down and let somebody else take us through. So anyway, we start off, and it's a thing called a dead man's handle that you've got to push down and turn. So he gets talking about, what's the team going to be on Saturday? Give us some clues. Give us some clues. We're all talking. We're all going on well. And the next thing, he's gone, take your hand off. Bump, stops. Now we're in pitch black. What's the matter? He said, we've gone through Shadwell. So I said, well, are we meant to stop? Meant to stop? He said, of course. He said, the people on the platform. He said, we've got to back it up. Well, Eric, come on, mate. Don't ask me to back it up. Then, of course, his bell's going off and all sorts. So as we're going backwards, there's two guards that are making their way down. So Eric then says, right, get back in the carriage and then get out. He said, run up the stairs as though nothing's happened. You know, and um, me and Auntie look at one another and we're going, is this for real or what? Is it? We've been set up, haven't we? This has got to be candid camera. But it wasn't, and we actually drove that train from Whitechapel past Shadwell and back again. And um, there is what happened on that fateful day in the week in 67. So... Where did you grow up? What was your early early life like, Lynn? Be um, before football. What what was what was Brian King of Young? Well, it was um, um, my mum and dad lived in the London area around South London, and straight, my dad came out of the he was in the RAF. Um, he wasn't a pilot or anything famous like that. He was just a guy who fixed the planes and served in North Africa and and in England, Spitfires and Hurricanes, especially. And, of course, coming out of the war, there was nothing, absolutely nothing around the London area and whatever. But he, he got um chance of a job with the aviation, the Ministry of Aviation at Stansted. So they moved out to Stansted. I was born. Um, and that was the start of me being a country boy, really. Um, Stansted was a great place to grow up. We had the airport there. We didn't have the M11 then, but that came. We had a train service, which 
40 minutes into London. Um, steam trains, of course, in them days. But um, Did you drive them, Kingy? Not the steam trains, mate. Although I've been on, to be fair, I've, I've been on the footplate of one of them as well. <laughs> but that was purely, I was purely putting the coal on. Nothing else. <laughs> Dancing to Bishop Salford and um, back in the carriage. But um, no, I enjoyed it. I enjoyed living in Stansted. It was, it was free out there. You know, you, you had the recreation ground, your, your mates, you went to school with, you played football every day, every night. And um, we all stuck. We all stuck together as such. A lot of my mates have passed away now, and I still have one very serious mate called Chris Turner, who's he's been with me ever since primary school, and um, he's probably my oldest and best friend. Um, just started playing football. I then uh, you get to a stage where something crops up in your life called eleven plus. Um, and to be fair, my mum had great hopes for me. Newport Grammar School, a lot. She thought I was going to work in the city and all that kind of stuff. But um, the coloured blazer, the coloured cap, Jim, you'll you remember these kind of grammar schools, etc. But I never went because I never passed 11 plus. And I never wanted to pass the 11 plus. Because so you fixed it? I fixed it. My mum would never have it, but I fixed it. So my Jim, dad, Jim fixed it for your less. book. <laughs> my dad couldn't have cared less. He just wanted me to play football. I was happy. And that's what I've done. I went to Stanchi Secondary School, played in a in a proper league for schools, in an Essex and Arfordshire League, and uh, managed to get not bad at what I was doing. And I played um, for, the, for the county and then got picked for the North and the South England schoolboy trials and it just went on from there really but I was I was always through my dad he was saying you've got to get a profession you've got to get a profession and as soon as I left school I left school 15 and I went to work with the Eastern Electricity Board to become an electrician um, it was tough playing part time with Chelmsford City and and working as well but we got through that and through all that hard work and and sacrifice, actually, because I try to say to young players today, there's always going to be a, uh, a part in your lives, especially when you're going out, and the words are going to be yes or no. Either you're going to go on and have a bit of fun and a, and a knees up, or it's time to go home. And luckily, I had, a, I had a good mate that used to usher me home or tell me to wash name off. But I thought, well, getting that chance to join Millwall after Chelmsford was a was what I'd been aiming for all my life, really. And you uh, had a couple of trials, I think you, Kenny. I'm sorry? Yeah, you'd had a couple of trials, I think you, before. Well, you I've had one. I, I went down to Swindon because that's that's um, that's where my mum's family come from down in Wiltshire. Um, and my cousin was at Swindon. Uh, he joined them at fourteen, and he became an apprentice at fifteen there. And and I went down there. To, to spend some time with him at the end of the summer, really. And he spoke to Bert Head and Bert Head said, well, we'll have a look at the boy. They had some good players then, by the way. Um, Swindon, Ernie Hunt, Mike Summerby, um, John Trollope, Peter Downsborough. All very good goal. You know, he was a good goalkeeper. And um, Mike Summerby and Ernie Hunt, of course, were top, top players. 
Um, I trained with the first team, um, trained with the youth team. At the end of the week, it was my cousin was signed as an apprentice and, and I wasn't, primarily because he didn't think I was going to be big enough. But he'd obviously not seen my granddad, um, as Mark so wonderfully puts in the book. He was six foot six. I was five foot nine at the time. Um, and finished up as I am now, six foot three. So I must admit that also was a was a little bit of a smack in the face, but you just got to get on with it. And I didn't want that to be the, the end of my role to become a pro footballer. Thank so you went back to Chelmsford? So you I went back to Chelmsford? I went to Chelmsford. Uh, they, they had a very good manager as well called Bill Frith. We had a couple of managers, Peter Harburn and Harry Ferrier, the old Portsmouth um, player who won the championship. And we, um, it, it was a very good league. It was a tough league. Great upbringing. Great for me to play with these old pros and, and players that have been in the game a long time and knew the game. Actually, this this is where one of the amazing things happened because Brian was telling me this story about him being at, at, at Chelmsford. And he mentioned the name of somebody. And this is where, you know, my Millwall history sort of kicked in. What happened, Brian, when you, you mentioned the name of the, of the guy who was looking after, yeah. the, after the ground? Yeah, I, um, the moment the, the youth team was selected, um, or the squad, we all turned up down Chelmsford City for our, for our jumpers and our, and our flannels and all that game, shirt and tie. And um, I was coming out, and the old boy on the ground was just going around cutting the grass and rolling the pitch. And a fellow called Don Walker, who was our, our assistant coach there at Chelsea, used to, play, used to play at Wolves. And he said to me, he said, Cor, the old groundsman here looks, son. He said he's been here for many, many years. Um, he, was, he was a good footballer in his day. So I said, oh, yeah. And who is he then? He said, his name is Jimmy Broad. Now, to me, Jimmy Broad was... I hadn't got a clue who he was. So Jim just mentioned to me, he said, um, did you ever meet the Chelmsford City groundsman? And I said, uh, yeah, I did actually. I shook his hand and said hello to him and things. He said, do you know who he was? I said, not a clue, Jim. Jim, explain who he is. Well, Jimmy Broad actually played in Millwall's first ever football league game. Um, in Actually, it was exactly 100 years ago, um, in 1920. And he actually scored in our 2-0 win. Uh, Jimmy Broad was our great striker uh, that we signed just after the end of the uh, First World War. And um, he went, he was just snapped up at the Football League. Mark is actually a Stoke City fan. And uh, Jimmy Broad went to Stoke City where he scored. He just just didn't stop scoring goals. Um, he, he was one of our great, great uh, players. Uh, just an amazing link between our first ever league game uh, and and Kingy. Just one handshake. Kingy Kingy is one handshake away from our first ever game in the football league. That that's the amazing linkage. Yeah. What? Uh, yeah. What actually isn't known about Jimmy Broad was I know that Kingy now lives in Norway. Jimmy Broad coached in Norway. Yeah, that's right. And um, yeah, but he also coached a little known team called Barcelona. Yes. In the nineteen twenties. So huge, yeah. huge name in the early days you, of all in the football league. Jim and Neil 
pre-war Millwall. That's that's a, I think that's a quiz night coming up between them two. Pre-war Millwall is 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 a massive massive passion of mine. I mean, I mean to be honest, you know, I, I'm I'm always looking for you know every Millwall program that I don't have. I mean, we, we joined the football to say in 1920. I think I'm missing. 35 home programs from, you know, from 1920. I'm trying to get the whole lot because basically I want to actually publish uh, for, 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 so there's always a record uh, of every single program uh, that's, that's ever been done. Uh, you know, more, more, more club history. I just, you'd never make money doing that. I'm not interested in that. It's just so that the history will always be preserved. But yeah, it's uh, the, the fact that, you know that you know we just mentioned that, and then suddenly the book doesn't just become about the nineteen sixties and nineteen seventies. Suddenly, you've swept right away back to the very earliest days of Mill Football Club in the Football League. It's you know it's just one of those little things that makes the hairs on your on the back of your neck stand up. I mean, obviously, um, myself, Neil, Jim, we know what Mill's like. We know obviously how Millwall is, everything else. You joined Millwall as your first proper team, full-time professional, um, coming to a South London club, which I suspect was pretty much like walking into a lion pit. And you weren't just walking in there. You were walking in and, and possibly starting to fill the boots of a Millwall legend in in Alex Stepney. Um that must have been immense pressure for you. Yeah, um, obviously I'd heard of Alec and um, especially heard of, actually I'd heard more of Laurie Leslie because of, because of the stories leading up to the 9-3 Scotland game. I think Laurie would have played in that if he hadn't have been kicked in the face at Airdrie or something. He said, I'm not sure how many stitches he actually had to prevent him playing, but it was, it was certainly double figures and um, knowing Laurie, he would have played anyway, but um, he was advised not to. Um, it was, and I also looked at the tradition of Millwall goalkeepers. I mean, Reg Davis before them, um, and then Malcolm Finlayson. Um, I mean, I met Malcolm Finlayson when Coventry City played Aston Villa at Villa Park. You know, again, I'd, I'd seen him, I uh, followed him when he played for Wolves and knew his reputation at Millwall. But to have met him and to be told, um, well done, son, that you you broke my record at Millwall as such, which at that time, I suppose it was, 230 games or something. And um, But I, th- I thought, such a nice fella. And if I can portray to the young keepers in Millwall the same things as these people have portrayed to me, whether it was Alec or Laurie, um, I didn't realise the intensity of the old den. Um, but it all came quite quickly. You know, I, I joined in July... I was in the reserves. I was in the first team in September uh, for a game and then I had a little run in October. And of course, the first home game, I mean, 19, 18, 19,000 in the den at that time in a night match was, um, it was a great atmosphere. And and um, coming through that game and thinking, this is what it's about. This is what it's about. And I can now understand why Ken Jones and Peter Shreves were saying to me, You'll, you'll never know how special the den is until you've actually played there. 
and I can assure you after playing there, there's, it's, it, it's a wonderful feeling. And if you make a mistake, it's still a wonderful feeling. But it's, you know, at that period I was playing in the reserves as well and I can assure you there were a few smart comments. Um, you've only got to drop a ball once and then every time you pick it up, there's a cheer goes around, whether it's a cheer in, um, you know, in a sarcastic way or whatever. But but um, it keeps you on your toes and I think that's what made me want to be better than I was. I, I mean, prove it. we're lucky enough, I mean, our, our show's fairly new in in the podcast arena as such, but we're doing really well with it. And and one thing what gets me with most players, I don't think there's been one player, and and we've got a lot lined up going forward, that every player seems to have an affiliation for Millwall forever. They ju- just, for a fan's point of view, we, we describe Millwall like you get the Millwall bug and, and it, and it, it's an infectious thing. Once it grabs you, it doesn't let go. And everyone who comes to Millwall, regardless if you've got second teams or you, your, your first team isn't necessarily Millwall, you grow an affection towards Millwall. You, you know, you watch their scores, you, you follow it on and all of that. And I mean, I just, I just think, love it or hate it, if Millwall get hold of you and take you in, they take you in but they tell you if you've you've done bad I mean we've done I've done an interview with um, Alan McKenna and Alan McKenna said I used to play my socks off on the pitch Um, week in week out he said but every time I come off the pitch he said there was three guys just to the left of the tunnel what used to tell me that I was alright and I played like and, and he said every home game these three guys used to sit there and he said, and I used to go out and try and play the best I could just so they didn't say it, but every week they said it. I mean, was that the same with you? Did you get dogs abuse from a certain part of the crowd? Not, not really. I, as I say, that first match against Blackpool, um, I had a, they had a 42 seat, bus come up from Stansted uh, with my, with my family, uh, my friends. I mean, it was a day out, wasn't it? You know, they Trafalgar Square, Buckingham Palace, and and the old and then Millwall, and the old Kent Road. Last, yeah, and the old Kent Road, and then it was. So I heard the story that it was um, it was fish and chips and or pie and mash on the way home from. But I still had to make my own way up to the station, and I can remember after the game, um, coming out into that little area between. Where, where the players go down to change and the front gates. And there was a couple of guys stood there and obviously they worked down the docks, quite sizable chaps, um, as rough as you want to look. And um, as I walked out, I know, we drew one each and they were leading the league at the time, Blackpool, I think, and they were a good side. And um, we went 1-0 up and I think Bobby Hunt scored the goal. Um and um, somebody shot, whether it was, was it Alan Ingram or Jerry Ingram or something. I think Jerry Ingram scored, I'm not sure. But somebody shot and he got a deflection off of Harry. As I was going one way, it just got that nick, so I had to change direction. And I got down and I, I couldn't get hold of it. And it just ran away from me a little bit. And as I went to go for the second one, um, Ingram, I think it is, who came in and scored. 
And um, as much as I, I didn't think it was my fault as much as what maybe some, some other people thought, but, you know, if I'd held it, there's no goal. But there again, I'm coming out after the game and these guys have stood there and it's, it's a decent little walk up to New Crossgate Station. Um, but I was pleased with myself. Got me bag with bits and pieces in and I come out and this bloke went, excuse me, mate. And I looked across and I thought, yeah, what? He said, uh, do you play tonight? So I said, yeah, I did, yeah. Um, he said, I'm going to tell you something, mate. So I said, oh, yeah. What's that? Alex Stepney, you innate. <laughs> I said, well, thank you very much for that. I thought, I'm not going to get engaged here in a, in a, any kind of argument because I think these two would sort me out in no time at all. So I continued my walk up to New Crossgate, feeling sorry for myself. And about 10 or 12 months later, we played. And um, I played pretty well. I think it was Middlesbrough we played. And I played really well at home. And I'm coming outside. And as I'm walking out, I'm going to get to my car now because Mickey's looked after me, Mickey Purser. So I'm now going to go for the game. He got a new VW. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, it was a Ford, actually. <laughs> I came out, but he gave me a good deal. Um, I came out, and instead of going right, you go left, because there's a big scrapyard down the end there before the tunnels. That's where we used to have to park our cars. So I'm thinking, are these are two herbs that were, were here the other time, you know. So he's looked at me again and uh, he said, how are you doing? So I said, uh, yeah, I'm okay. So he said, uh, remember me, mate? So I said, no. So he said, well, I remember you. I said, oh, it's coming back slowly now. Well, you're going to slag me off again? He said, I'm going to tell you something, son. Alex Stepney can go and do one because you'll knock him sideways, son. Now, my name, I forget the fellow's name now, but he said, whether it was Richard or somebody, he said, there's a pub opposite Deptford Park, down on that side there by Deptford Park. I'll drink in there, he said, you, your family, welcome in there any time. If I ain't in there, tell the barman, put it on my tab. You're the business, son. You're the business. And I thought, well, now I feel as though I've been accepted as a Millwall player. And from then on, they've been... They were, they were unbelievable, to be honest. They liked the honesty. They liked the bravery. And the fact that I could actually catch a ball and keep it out of the net at times as well helped. But It's always a plus, isn't it? Well, it helps. And I'll tell you, when, when we, were, we were going through, Jim and I were going through, uh, there's a huge suitcase of memorabilia that uh, Brian sent across, brought across, in fact. And um, looking through some of the old cuttings there, and go, going back into 1968, so in... Brian's second season, and there were headlines there saying about Kingy and the Boot Boys. And uh, it, it took a while. There was a little run there, I think, where, where Brian actually taken a knock. And I think was it was it your ribs, Brian, that were were playing yeah, up early that season. Yeah. And then I think yeah. I think the team got beat at Hull quite badly, letting three at Hull. And then there was a, a whacking at Molyneux, I think, in the League Cup. And it all came to a head. And I think. It was almost after that, but just to see headlines even a year into your career at Millwall where, you know, you'd had to put up with a lot and um, you were still seeing it through. And it was just after that, I think, probably it turned for you. But, I mean, it's a, it's a hell of a start to a young man's career. And as you were saying, Mickey, at the start, you know, 
to go from Chelmsford City into Millwall and still 12 months on to be getting those sort of headlines and uh, to see it through and come out the other side is a legend. And that, I think mentally, more than anything, that's a big... I agree. Just, just on that point, Jim, um, just on that point, sorry, Brian, um, it was these two gits what were probably writing those headlines. <laughs> I'm not sure. Uh, no hyphen in boo boys, by the way. <laughs> Listen, when, when you say about journalism and things like this, um, I can remember talking to the journalist in question after the game, and he was asking me how things were. I said, It's tough, you know, when it's not easy when you're, when you're catching a ball and they're, and they're booing you, and they're your supporters. Um, you know, I mean, if, you, if you're going to keep on doing it, you have to look and think, well, maybe I should go somewhere else. And um, that was all totally off the record at the time. And then the following... There was no such thing as off the record with a journalist, bro. Well, there was there was some journalist. <laughs> but uh, but it, to wake up the next morning and the whole back page of the mirror, or the, the mirror was, King's had enough of the boo boys, he wants out. I mean, that was not what I said. Or that was also a learning curve to keep your gob shut. Um, <laughs> that's, that, that's, that is one thing, um, Jim and, and Neil will balance We are probably one of the only clubs who are fans. Um, obviously, I know Jim's got, you know, historical, historical books as such, but our fans have, have never really written a waltz and all like most of the other um elements within the, the the football league, the likes of, you know, West Ham and Sheffield and Leeds, et cetera, et cetera. Um, I just don't know. We, we just seem to have this um, hatred of the media, um, even though a lot of Millwall fans seem to work in the media. Yeah, I, I, th- I think a lot of that goes back to Panorama, to be honest. Yeah, 77, yeah. I, I, I think that really, you know, lit the blue... Uh, fuse on that one. Um, well, I, so, yeah, well, let me say, Kingy, the guy that wrote that story, yeah, must have been my old mate, Clarky. Yeah, I know Clarky very well. Nigel yeah. Clark, I know. Yeah. And, I, and I sat next to him at Wimbledon every year for about six years. Right, yeah. Uh, top bloke. Yes, Absolutely. <laughs> But you have to watch what you said to him in the early 70s, late 60s, early 70s, mate. Because well, he'd I, written I, I suppose everybody was looking for a story then because there was no social media or anything else. And if you're a bit short on headlines, King was usually not a bad one, not a bad one to throw in. You know, King's lot and King of the Castle and King wants to quit and all that stuff. Very easy to. Funnily enough, I talked to Steve Perriman yesterday. I spoke to Steve Perriman yesterday. We were talking about that. And um, he says, it's a great title for your book. I said, you had, a, you had a journalist's name to conjure with, really, didn't you? Perryman. I mean, it, it, ain't, it don't flow off the tongue, does it, to say that you're going to have, a, have an easy way of saying that or, or whatever. But he, he laughs about that. He laughed about the bad times as well when he was at Tottenham. But, but I think if you could show enough guts... And um, and honesty, these people who come to Millwall every week and 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 if they do take to you, and I was lucky at the, I was lucky for seven eight years where they took to me, and uh, I, I wouldn't have wanted to play anywhere else in the world. Well, I, I think I think this is one of the things that the book actually does. It you know, Millwall 
the team is watched by tough supporters, right? The, 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 these are these are these are hard people who know their place. They they know they're hard and they control that. The, the, you know, my dad was the same. My my dad grew up next to the to the den. He started going in 1923. My dad was hard as nails. They were they were a certain type. But so too were the players, and they expected it. The players to to be a kind of a embody them, if you like. And you know, one of the great things, you know, we're talking about the seventy one seventy two season. What was it? Seven or eight players played forty two games that season. You know, they played in every game. A few others played in forty one or forty. They were tough. They would take the knocks, but they would get up and they would turn out the following Tuesday after getting the kick on the, on the Saturday and they still play the Tuesday, they'll get the kick on the Tuesday, they're still playing the Saturday. They'd still go out. There was no kind of, all right, we're going to rest him. We're going to get, you know, the, the team so perfectly in your era represented the people that they supported. And I think that comes through in the, in the book, thanks to Mark, brilliantly, actually. You sat there and you said, obviously, rock hard and, and hard people. Um, you had your lip stitched to your tongue without any anaesthetic. Um, that makes you hard, <laughs> <laughs> well, especially at half time. Um, yeah. No, it was well. Again, um, it all came about by by a, a, a fella who's been a lot of stuff written about his dementia and everything else, Jeff Astle. Um, he got in my way as I went to collect a corner. The ball, I should have, I should have punched it, tried to catch it, dropped it, went for the second one, which I got, and ended up getting a kick in the face um, from a Scotchman. But um, I didn't have chance to to see whether it was an Adidas boot or a Puma boot or any other kind of boot. All I remember was it hit me in the face, and I was looking for my teeth in the mud. Um, but coming back to the coming back to the dressing room. I mean, dear old Benny comes in straight away and says, what, what's that? What's he done? What's he done? And he says to me, if you'd have caught the cross, you wouldn't have got kicked. And that was it. You know, and he's right. As, as unsympathetic as it seems, if I'd caught the cross, I wouldn't have got kicked. But there were bodies in front of me, which resulted in me losing the ball, but I got it again. But the doc, I mean, I don't, I, I don't think he ever had this kind of work to do during the 10-minute break that we had or 15 minute break or whatever it was. And um, I'm laid on the table and Jack said, we've got to put some stitches in that lip doc. You can't go out like that. Fair enough, Jack. And I, I was a little bit wary because the doc was shaking a bit. And um, um, when you're laying there, you know yourself, if, if you've got a touch on your lip or, or your tongue, even if you bite your tongue, it's murder, isn't it? And, I could feel the first needle going in what he put in through my lip. And um, that was bad enough. But when he went up, and it, it would take the thread up to a height where I could watch it coming down again. And, and that wasn't pleasant. He could have at least, at least sort of took it to the side of it. But then he got into the second one. And I think this is, this is really sore. This is really. And then the third one, and I said, Doc, you must, you've got to stop, Doc. I said, I, he said, you goalkeepers, he said. I always thought goalkeepers were brave. And now I'm talking like this, you know. So I said, yeah, Doc, but 
don't, don't, don't. Jack's going, don't complain, son. Don't complain. You'll be all right. You'll be all right. I'm going, Jack, Jack. I can't, he can't carry on, Jack. The doctor was not matter. I said, well, Doc, are you meant to sew me lip to me tongue? So he said, oh, my God. I, I, oh, dear, Jack, look what I've done, he said. And he's been talking like this now. I'm talking like this. What's going on there, Doc? Anyway, he cuts the stitches out and whips a quick one in on the lip. And out I go. Second half, swig of brandy. Um, <laughs> I took a swig of brandy. What well, they always used to have a little flask in the in the medical box. And uh, Jack gives me a nudge on the arm. He says, swallow it. Don't spit it out. So, um, <laughs> so uh, we went for the second half. You took the manager's advice as well. He didn't drop the ball again. I'll tell you what. <laughs> Unfortunately, I did drop a few in my time, but um, I never got booted either. <laughs> Because I remember talking to you about the 71-72 season yes. when I was writing a piece earlier in the year. Yeah. And you were telling me about the time when Benny Fenton came and uh, got you out of hospital with concussion because he wanted you to play. Tell us that story. Yeah, that was in Cardiff, actually. It was a Cardiff. We just played Cardiff City. We drew two each, I believe. And the pitch was rock hard. And I got John Toshek. I dived at his feet. Um, and of course he followed through with his shin and his foot and everything and, and hit me in the head um, and I was out I was out for about it must have been 40 seconds 50 seconds I was out uh, Jack come on magic sponge I came round I thought I couldn't remember being by the seaside I've never seen that much water but as the water cascaded all over me he said follow my finger <laughs> He'd put his finger in front of you and he'd go left. He said, can you see it? I said, yeah, I can see it, Jack. You're right then, you're right. Carry on. He's all right, ref. Game went on. Come in the dressing room after the game. Um, I sat feeling a bit rough. Went to the went to the, to the toilet area there at Ninian Park and I uh, was sick. Spewed up everywhere and um, I just felt terrible. So the doctor came in again, Cardiff City doctor as well, and they said, you better go to hospital. Concussion. Now, concussion was about as as uh, much spoke about as what dementia was at that time, I suppose. So I went to Cardiff General, stayed in Saturday night, uh, got up. Well, I was in bed Sunday morning with Jimmy Schooler, the manager, and John Tushet come and said hello and how are you going and all that. Yeah, I said, I feel a lot better. The phone goes in the ward and the nurse brings the phone to the bed. And um, I'm thinking whoever it is, you know. Hello? Hello? Oh, hello, boss. Um, how are you feeling? I said, yeah, I'll be all right. I'll be all right. He said, um, yeah, he said, I spoke to the doctor. He's all right, any? he? No, he hadn't spoken to the doctor, that's for sure. He said, he's all right, any? Nice bloke. <laughs> so I said, yeah, he's all right. He said, um, you're travelling back tomorrow then, uh, this afternoon. So I said, um, am I? He said, yeah. He said, uh, you get a train ticket. And you're coming back, Paddington. We'll have a car to meet you at Paddington. So I said, okay. They took me home to where I was living. And um, he he said to me beforehand, um, you'll be all right, won't you? So I said, yeah, I'll be all right. I'll be all right. Thanks for inquiring. And I said, remember, he said, there's a game tomorrow. So I said, is there? He said, yeah. He said, and you're playing. And the phone went dead. So I reported to the den I think I had to report early, about three o'clock. 
and um, had a cup of tea and a chat with him and away you went. You played the game and nowadays I believe it's six weeks before you can play again after concussion. Um, that's why I got the twitch. I got the twitches and all that. In there. But, but no, it was um, it was just the way things were in those days. You, you seem to get on with it and you believe what you were told. No, that's it, that's it. One thing from the book what I liked and, and, and unfortunately it's no longer in operation. It it was it was stopped for whatever reason. But Brian, what was it like having dinner in the uh, BT Tower? And uh, who's Rosemary? Rosemary was my first wife. Um, who I'd met on the Hull es- escapade coming back from Hull. She got the training call. And there was this rather nice-looking girl sitting all on her own in a first-class compartment. And you can imagine when the train pulled in, all the lads going, see that bird in there? Did you see that bird? And um, anyway, every, we were in foot. One thing about Millwall, we always travel first class on the trains, always in the old Pullman for the dinner and lunch or breakfast or whatever it was. And um, we all bailed in there. And, um, yeah, I was I was Mr. Cole then and um, ended up walking off the train and chatting with her. And uh, funnily enough, she... She finished runner-up in Miss Great Britain, and um, she was down in London doing some modelling and stuff, and, um, and whatever. So I arranged to meet her again, and it was a couple of months, I think, she called me up. So I thought I'm going to really impress her in the old um, the old post office tower there, the revolving restaurant, didn't they? But of course, you you don't want too many glasses of wine when you get off there to go to the toilet because you forget where you are and you're ending up. It's like being on a merry-go-round, isn't it? Uh, like having concussion <laughs> you could end up with if you fell out that window um, but no that was a, that was another groundbreaking achievement by Mr King what was the food like? can't remember <laughs> <laughs> it was alright though that was, that was too much wine not concussion <laughs> Neil's got a question for you ain't you Neil come on so 71-72, we've only ever played in the first division once or, or well, for two seasons, haven't we? 71-72 was our best chance. Only two up at the time. We finished third. Surprise, surprise. The conspiracy to keep us out of the top division. What went wrong that year? Because we should have, well, we should have flown up. Yeah, well, but with that team and the players we had and... We had we had one or two injuries at crucial at crucial times in that season, um, but we 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 were a good side. I mean, we were a good side, and there were some great players in that team, young players, experienced players. Um, but but we we went to places where we should have won, and we got beat. We lost at Luton, I think. We lost at Burnley. I mean, we should have murdered Burnley. Um, it was an horrible day and one or two players looked as though they didn't fancy it. We went to Preston and got beat 4-0 that season. I mean, there were three or four in the side that side or that day who, um, who, who just didn't play at all. I mean, you know, and uh, to get beat 4-0, I mean, we were, I mean, how can I say, we were, we were far better than than what we were. And then, of course, we were we were either first or second nearly all season. And then we went to Birmingham. And I don't care what anybody says. If he wasn't offside, 
for the first for the first shot when I blocked it from Hatton. Um, I mean, I, everybody, even they did. They couldn't believe they scored. I mean, if we'd have got a draw up there, um, I think the whole thing would have just been so different. I think we'd have we'd have had so much confidence going into the remainder of the games because that was the place. That was the place to get a result because we murdered them at our place, absolutely murdered them, played them off the park. I've uh, done the VAR on the the YouTube, by the way. Sorry? Bob Hatton. Bob Hatton was half a yard off. I've done the VAR on the YouTube. Yeah, yeah, right, definitely off. And I mean, after having, I, I would say that was probably one of my best games up there. I mean, they were pumping crosses in all the game, and it was it was the pitch was heavy, the ball was wet, but. I was just getting everything. I was catching well, I'll, everything. I'll tell you what, Kiki, it was one of your best games and the cover of Lions of the South cool. is you tipping one over the bar at right. It's one one yeah. of the best. Do you know, I remember seeing that photograph. When I was, when I was doing Lions of the South back in the 80s, <clears throat> I had that photograph and I was going to put it in and I took it out at the last minute and I put in the goal because oh, right. historically... It was more important. Yeah. But I'll tell you what, that photograph of you was always going to be the cover of the book. I'd had it in my head for since, since about 1985. Yeah. That, that photograph of you tipping over the bar is so spectacular. And and that's exactly what's happened. Yeah. But there's, there's another picture as well that's in the book, I think, um, with a shot. Like- your work technology should help your organization run better. Monday.com is an intuitive platform designed to help teams of all sizes work better together and maximize results. With Monday.com, you can easily customize your workflows to fit your team's exact needs and create automated updates to keep everyone up to speed in real time. Experience the power of a single platform that replaces your costly tech toolbox and the headache that comes with it. To start your 14-day free trial, Go to monday.com. At LensCrafters, we value expertly tailored eye care, provide state-of-the-art eye exams, offer a wide assortment of designer brands and high-quality lenses, because everything we do at LensCrafters is for every site that makes your life special. We offer 50% off lenses with frame purchase. Shop in-store and online. Book your annual eye exam now on LensCrafters.com. LensCrafters, because sight. Eye exams are available at the Independent Doctor of Optometry at or next to LensCrafters. Doctors in some states are employed by LensCrafters. Offer valid to September 5th. See associate for details. Down to my left. Yeah. And I think Trevor Francis was about eight or nine yards out and he hit this on the half volley low. Yeah. And I mean, if, if that had gone in, nobody would have questioned it, but I got my hand on it and pushed it around the post. Um, but we defended well as well that day. And they they were a side who was in the ascension and uh, Christ, they, they were a good side as well then. I mean, they were winning games. and oh, They got to the cup semi-finals, I think, didn't they? That's yeah. Super- yeah, they, that's why that game against Orient was um, was put back till after the season had actually finished. And I think that was the worst part about it. Seeing the evening news and the evening standard after the Preston game and seeing the league table with one game left to play. And we were promoted, actually. We were, we were promoted because it was Norwich and us. And then it was Birmingham. And then QPR, I think. But Birmingham, of course, still had a game to play. And they were a point behind us. Um, and to to have the season ended that way was terribly sad. But because we all thought this was going to be the this was going to be the the history maker, 
of putting Millwall into the first division for the very first time in their history. Interestingly, you know, there's still a debate over whether the 1971-72 team was a better team than the 88-89 that actually did get promotion. And there's, you know, people argue over over many a pint over that one. Mm. Mm. I don't know what uh, I don't know what other people think on that one. Neil, well, were there people in that seventy-one, seventy-two team that weren't pulling their weight, Brian? Is that why we maybe came up a little bit short? Well, I've said names in the books. So I read the book, but um, yeah, no, well, I know the names. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, I interviewed you about this guy. <laughs> there, there will be a link for the book in the show notes, so make sure it's out Thursday. Make sure you click the link and uh, and order the book because if you want to know who it is and their classics, you need to get the book. It, it was the butler, uh, <laughs> done it with the candlestick in the hallway. I'm telling you. It was indeed. Oh, oh Brian, you, I don't know if you know this, but we had a photograph today from the printers, who are not in the UK, unfortunately, but we had a photograph from the printers of the first finished books. Uh, they look absolutely fantastic. Well, I'm glad to hear that because, I, I'm, you know, I'm, I, I really hope that Millwall supporters look at this as something maybe they never expected. It's something I never expected to be able to to have a book about me, but I I want it to be about my life, about the time when I was at Stansted and at Chelmsford City that were important periods of my life, in my football life, and certainly when I went on to Coventry. The bad luck came after so many years of playing in second division football, but, but whether that was the correct move to go to Coventry at the time, I don't know. If I'd have stayed at Millwall, I'm sure I'd have played a thousand games. Um, and I'd have been there as long as Kitch. Uh, but there you go. You, Gordon said to me, "We we have to raise sixty grand. I want to bring this in and that in and this. This is your chance. Gordon Mill wants to take you. Bobby Robson wants to take you. You've got to make your mind up. But we need the money, Bry. We need the money. And that I'm thinking again. You know, well, if I can help Gordon." and uh, I can help the club back in the second division then. So be it. Let's do it. It was a typical Millwall thing, wasn't it? Yeah, we got relegated and then we had the cash in. Yeah. Yeah. It's happened for our history. One, one, one thing, well, obviously a lot of people listening to this are probably, you know, possibly too young and whatnot, but what was Harry Cripps like? Infectious. He was... He was funny. He was a London boy. Um, he, had a, he had a story, I can tell you. And he also, he, he had more strokes than Mark Spitz, the swimmer. I'll tell you, it, you wanted anything, Harry's your man. Um, but he was, he was a great gear up of opposition. You know, he'd get the opposition. He would, especially when he got in the box. I mean, he scored 11 goals one season there. Um, and he was always fiddling with people and taking the mickey out of them and pulling the shirt or asking them how the missus was um, and this kind of thing, trying to get people at it all the time. But he was he was 100%. I mean, through and through, Harry was Harry was Millwall then and I think he'll live in everybody's memory, 
everybody. Yeah, I yeah, the, you... the, fun, the funny thing was, I mean, again, hard as nails, but you meet him in real life, and he was one of the loveliest people I ever met. A, a, a real soft, soft-hearted gentleman. Just a lovely, lovely guy. Lovely. Yeah, he was. He was. I mean, obviously, I sent you that thing the other day. Twenty yeah. years, wasn't it? With um, with the uh, Harry Harry Kipps um on the on the bridge. I think it was on a bridge wall. Um, yeah. you know, obviously, um, which I, I found the other day. But you were um, Kitchener was your room mate, wasn't he? Yeah. Kitchen's my roommate. My first roommate was Bobby Hunt. Right, okay. Right there. Um, I, just, I just looked up Bobby Hunt. He lives in Essex. Yeah. Um, I think Jim's got a story about him as well. Um, but he, he was a funny he was a funny man, Bobby. He really was, without knowing he was funny. Um, and um, it, was a, it was a good centre forward. I mean, he earned a good living at Millwall, Ipswich, started at Colchester. Um but um, no, we were, me and Kitch then had about, yeah, seven and a half years. Um, me having to tolerate him and him having to tolerate me. He was a messy bugger though, I'll tell you what. How Hazel put up with him, I don't know. Well, talking, that, that leads me nicely onto a little story doing obviously some of the research for, for this where we spoke into a couple of times and whatnot and I, and I didn't get to raise it last time we were speaking. But... Um, I saw obviously um, an old video, um, what you did with Millwall probably the last time you come over, a good, what, five plus years ago on Lions Player. And you were talking about the um, the game where Kitch loses his boot. Yeah, that was the final game of that season when we should yeah. have Yeah. I mean, he just, he ended up losing both his boots, didn't he? No, he, he the thing was, he, he had a shot. Alan Kelly was in goal for Preston, the old Irish international goal. Funnily enough, um, I'm sure Forty would remember Alan and his son, who both played for, for the Republic. Kitch had gone on, on an attack and then ended up trying to hit a shot, but his boot went further than the ball. And it ended up in the back of the net, the cold blow lane end. But instead of going to get it, he turned and then chased back. The full length of the pitch... Gets in the penalty box. They've got a corner, Preston. And he looks, I look at him and I said, you do realise you've only got one boot, don't you? He said, yeah, the other one's in the cold blow lane end. <laughs> I said, well, he said, oh, you ain't doing a lot. Guess one of yours. I said, what? He said, well, give me one of yours and then you'll be all right. I can, I can get that one back down. He asked Let's get the corner away and whatever. Anyway, some p- polite person had run around and picked the boot, boot up and Kitch managed to get it back on in some shape or form. But the mud on his sock, trying to get that sock with all that mud into a boot. Work of art. <laughs> Work of art. I mean, Kitch, I mean, I never got to see Kitch, but Kitch yeah. was obviously, you know, a, um, and I, I mean, I never met him either, but Kitch was obviously, everyone I've ever spoken to has such fond... Um, respect for Kitchener. I mean, uh, you know, if if those listening, if you've never seen it, I'll put the link in the show notes. But there was a a lovely, um, I think it was it was the um, memorial or something for him at the Den, where a few ex players talked about him, um, and and they do a nice video, and and it, and it's all in there. It's lovely. It, 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 
it's it's lovely. But I just don't think anyone had a bad word for him, and he was possibly um, mistreated by Millwall slightly with the manager set up. Um, but that man was through and through. You cut him open, he was Millwall. He could have gone on um, to possibly far greater things with other clubs, but he just didn't move. He just stayed at Millwall. He should have done. He should have done, to be honest. He was a he was a first division centre-half. Um, a real first division centre-half. And um, he could play a bit and all. Sometimes he'd try and show you he could play a little bit when he should have been putting it 50 yards down the pitch, he'd have a little jiggle up in the box and um, he'd get a verbal off of me to which didn't go too far with him. And um, But he was he was more skillful than people give him give him credit well, for. Well, when, he first, when he first came to Millwall, he was, you know, for the youth team and for the reserves, he was playing at full back. Yeah. And sometimes he used to get onto that left wing and go tearing down the, down the left wing as a left winger. Yeah. I mean, it, it was just amazing to watch. But funny enough, I, I think Kitch's great moment of glory with Millwall came after you left, Brian. Okay. And it was that it was season 75-76 when we got um, promoted after one season yeah. under Gordon Jager. And we up until Christmas, we, we were just... Yeah, we'd win a game, we'd lose a game. We, we, we weren't particularly impressive we just got rid of Gordon Hill Gordon Hill left I think he played against in a game early November at Chester I was there and he, we sold him about two days later and even though we got promoted he still ended up as our top goal scorer with about nine goals but the reason we got up we weren't scoring goals it was because we weren't letting any in mm. and and Kitch was unbelievable because he marshaled that defence in such a way I, I have never, ever seen since. And we had the most extraordinary stat, I think, in 21 games or something like that, we only conceded once in the first half with mm. Kitch at centre-half. And that was how we got up because, you know, we, we were chasing Malcolm Allison's Crystal Palace. They, they, they were cruising. And then they started just losing a few points and we got on this run and then we picked them at the end. And it was down to Kitch and the way he kept that player going. And I'll tell you something, we had John Seisman, we had John Seisman playing for us, he signed for us that season. And remember the, the funeral, Kitch's yeah. funeral. And we were discussing whether to go in. And and John Seisman said to me, We'll follow, we, we will follow his coffin because we followed him out onto the pitch and now we'll follow him into the church. Yeah, and I must admit, I was, it was one of the proudest moments of my life and the saddest to, to be one of the bearers of that coffin. And um, I just thought, well, the first time I met him was at a tournament in Southend. Millwall played Chelmsford City under 18s. He was playing for Millwall. I was playing for Chelmsford. I never knew he was going to be my teammate in 18 months or two years' time. But I must admit, if you talk about a teammate, then he's, he's the bloke you want on your shoulder, mate, I tell you. Come thick or thin. I mean, he was a true leader. That was the whole point. He absolutely led by example 
and you know you, you would see him turn to a person have a right right go and all the time he was talking and point you know it he was just fant- just fantastic to watch fans but, absolutely loved him didn't they well, he, well, well how could you not how kitch was the embodiment of millwall football club he really left footer quality he, had a, he, he could hit a great ball off that left foot by the way he scored uh, a few from the corners with that yeah. left my God. I mean, when he attacked the ball, he attacked the ball. And um, there were many times when he felt my knees in his ribs and up his arse and, and all sorts. But um, um, it early days, he'd always say, are you going to shout? Are you going to open your mouth when you come for a cross or what? And the time when I would open my mouth would be the time I'd end up clattering him. And he'd, he'd just say at half time or something, for Christ's sake, keep your mouth shut and just come and get it, will we? Um, but I lost a true friend and, and his family. I mean, lovely family. I mean, great family. Hazel stole and looked after him to, to his death and, and the rest of his family, his daughters and that. And I mean, just a good family and meeting them all that day, Jim, so sad, but, but, um, we, we try to put a bit of humor in his funeral as well, because you did. that's, that's how he would want it. You know, what are you all moping about for? Come on, get your heads up and let's get on with it. Yeah. Yeah, well, I can remember he had the same phone number for about 30 years. Yeah. And yeah. I wanted to get hold of him for some or other. <laughs> Changed it. I, I phoned up, so I phoned up this number. He'd moved house. <laughs> He'd actually left the phone number behind. So this, this person said, why does bloody everybody keep on phoning up wanting, yeah, wanting to speak to this Barry Kitchener? Who was he? Yeah. I said, I don't know who he is. He's fucking royalty, mate. Yeah. And when he died, I can I can still remember the night he died and word had spread that Millwall royalty had died. Yeah. And it actually felt as if a member of your family had gone. We were absolutely devastated, and I can remember that memorial service for that first home game afterwards. And every nobody gets in Millwall an hour before kickoff, do they? Never ever. But the ground was packed that day to pay tribute to one hell of a man. Yeah. Uh, Well, when when I got, I tell you who called me. It was Brian Horn had told me that Kisha passed away. And I was on a scouting job in Prague, um, going to see a couple of games can, in the Czech Republic. I was going to say, be careful what you say there. You were going to see a couple of, you're in Prague. <laughs> <laughs> of, yeah. this, this was the time when we went to watch football. And um, and um, Orny rang me up. He said, you know, Kishi's funeral is, um, is this week. I said, w- w- when is it? He said... Um, so I said, Jesus, I'm not going back to Norway until. So anyway, I rang up. I think I was with, what was it, eight years ago. I just started having. And um, anyway, I, I rang up um, the chief scout there, Robbie Cook. And I said, listen, I'm going back for Barry Kishi's funeral. I'll be back for the end of the, you know, I'll be back after a couple of days to see the rest of the league games that I've got to watch. That's okay, he said, get it done. So I flew flew from Prague in a Gatwick, only met me at Gatwick, and we drove 
Um, we got to Galston, a hotel in Galston, 40 towers it was. You would not have believed it. Um, and we get checked into this hotel. Um, <laughs> I mean, it was. I mean, you couldn't believe it. You opened the door and you had to climb over the bed um, of your room, you know, to get into the room, actually. <laughs> and um, anyway, it was. we were there. It was somewhere on the front in Yarmouth, anyway. So we had a laugh and a giggle in the morning when we had breakfast, and we made our way up to Galston, where where the funeral was going to be, etc. And I mean, if I'd have been in America, I'd have got back from. Um, I, I just had to say cheerio to the back to the big fella, and um, I was I was pleased. I was pleased that Hazel wanted me to say some words and things, and um, I'd sat there in the morning trying to write something down about the laughs we had and, and bits and pieces. And it turned out well, actually. It turned out and people enjoyed what I said and they enjoyed what every other person said as well. And we had a good a, a good um, drink and then only drove me back to London, Gatwick, stayed the night in the hotel at Gatwick, flew back to Prague, saw the games and then went back home to Norway. And that was a week which um, you won't forget too often and... Uh, that was where I met Jim as well. I hadn't, um, hadn't seen Jim for a few years, and that's when he approached me with, the, do you ever fancy writing a book? And I said, well, do you think anybody would want to read it? And he said, well, I would. And that's where it sort of started to grow. Because yeah. that team you played in, they were a team of characters, weren't they? Every yeah. single one of them was a character in their own way. They're not like today where they're, probably quite bland and they're quite corporate and they're all managed. You played at a great time when you didn't earn a lot of money, but by Christ, you played with some characters. We did. And and the fact of the matter was, these characters were good footballers as well. Yeah. I mean, you know, you look at Barry Bridges, I mean, great fella, great experience, um, quality player. Quality player and a quality lad. He was good fun, Barry. Um, um, and of course, Kitch and Dorney and Burnett, Harry, Brian Brown. I mean, you had you had Posse and Weller, Brian. You had Posse and Weller. Well, we never had Weller. We never had Weller, but we had Posse. Weller won in that side. Weller, Weller. Oh, and... sorry, sorry, seventy-one, seventy-two. Sorry, yeah. I, I thought you were talking about no. Um, sorry. Weller had gone, and um, I mean the way he, the way he put that team together. Benny was genius. I mean, and it didn't cost a lot, really, did it? I mean, no. Derek Smethurst, what was he? Fringe player with Chelsea, 15 grand. Um, Brian Brown was a free. Harry was practically a free when he came from West Ham. Um, Dennis Burnett cost money. Alan Dornet. Um, Alan Dorney was, um, was a player who'd been brought in from the youth system. Yeah. Um, myself, Five grand. Kitch come through the youth system. Dougie uh, cost what he cost eight grand from York. Yeah. Um, Dougie Alder. Dougie Alder come through the youth system. Um, it, it was it, it was a side that that had sort of gelled a couple of years. The basis of that team had gelled a couple of years before because we were in the running with the Crystal Palace time until we went to Crystal Palace and got beat four two. Was it two years before then? Um, 
you, you, you had a bit of a bad start to 70-71, but the yeah. run into 70-71 was, was like a... Oh, yeah. You know, it was like warning of what was going to come next because yeah. we had a fantastic finish to the 70-71 season and we just carried on with that. Yeah. It's a bit, it was a bit like the 80... 88 team, 87, 88 team, wasn't it? Where a lot of them come through the youth team as well, didn't they? Yes. Well, I think Horney, Horney yeah. probably been far more than I ever could have done. But uh, I was watching that um, little video clip I think you put on this morning. And um, I mean, it, it was a good looking lad, Horney, wasn't he? And uh, as he's told us, as he's told us, um, he was quick. I'd question, I'd certainly question that, but um, he was. He was a good goalkeeper. Oh, boo, you know he was a good goalkeeper. Well, sorry, sorry, you. I mean, do you think a lot of the time there with how football was back then is that you played a lot of games? You were, you know, if you were injured, you used to play proper games. And obviously, you also had the five-a-side, what was that, the Evening Standard League as well, didn't you? Which we were quite successful in as well, weren't we? Yeah, well, we lost in the final um, because I think the year we played, first year I played in it, we had to play... We had to play England. Um, well, it was what was England then, wasn't it? It was West Ham we played in the first round. And they had Bobby Moore, Jeff Hurst, Martin Peters, um, who were playing. Uh, Ronnie Boyce and Bobby Ferguson was in goal. Or, or Peter Grote or somebody. And um, they were the favourites. And we beat them. And uh, we got through the second round. And then the quarterfinal and the semi-final. And we lost to Chelsea, I think. It was in the final. And Chelsea had a really good side then. And... Uh, but that was a good night. I mean, for us, you used to get fifty pound to appear, and then as you went on, you got paid for for every round. So you're probably earning more money than you did play at Millwall. But it was a good night, and it was packed every year. It was packed. Do you remember it? I mean, yeah. a great program. I think there's eight thousand people there, and it was good fun. And but they don't do that anymore, do they? You yeah, uh, stopped in '95, didn't it? Stopped yeah. in '95. It used to be televised on sports yeah, night, well, did, and yeah, things like did. that, didn't it? That's right. That's right. And I mean, it was a good turnout. All the supposedly all the best players would um, would be there, and invariably they were. Yeah, it's a midweek sports special. That's it. Wednesday night. I think yeah. it was always on a Wednesday. I think the evening standard. Um, yeah, something that, that I think uh, I think it was Brian Horn mentioned on the on the show with the three goalkeepers, and it's nothing against today's players necessarily that Brian was saying the characters in football and in days gone by yeah. there were characters then not so much now and I, I often wonder um you know whether I, I look back on my childhood growing up with football and wondering whether I'm just looking at it through rose-tinted spectacles about the characters that were then but I, I don't know. I mean, I, I, coming back to this book that, that tried to, to, to get across to people, even though they may not have been around in those days, just it was a really special time to play football from, from Brian's point of view, to watch football, to be a part of football. Uh, it's almost like a different game. I, 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 I totally agree. I think the character, I mean, I'm I'm 45. I'm probably the youngest one here by the looks of it. Um <laughs> <laughs> I, I, Let's just fair, go my birth certificate, shall we, Mickey? I'm the oldest, so let's get on with it. But I mean, you know, growing up, you when I was growing up, you had you know, my era, you had Hoddle, Lineker, Rush, um, Barnes, 
Daglish, Grobler. Every you know, team had someone you, with that, that, you that, had that, that character. Nigel, Nigel Whiteside, you know, all the all the old Man United, um, all the old Man United, Brian Robson, all that. You had all the, the names. Now, you don't really have that same, you know, that same effect. You definitely don't have the Panini sticker book no more. Um, what oh, you used to beg still borrow to get certain players. Um, and I think kids back then just love football. They didn't necessarily support a team they never watched. It was all about the football. And, and and I think that you never used to have it on telly all the time. So the games what were on telly were special and you used to watch CFAX or Teletext, et cetera. That was, that was how, you know, that was the social media of, of my younger years. And I agree. I think there is no characters in the football now. Money, yeah, the TV I, exposure. You know, it's, it's interesting. I mean, to be honest, at my age, it wasn't Panini. It was Typhoo tea cards. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> he, he used to yeah. used to collect the black and white ones and send them off and get a colour one. I don't know if anyone else remembers that. Yeah, well, you were probably in the days of the evening sports paper as well, which you'd pick up. Outside the local tube station. Well, that was that was how I started. That's I started as a, as a as a journalist when, when I was still at school, writing for the evening sports papers. That's how that's how I began. Was that the pink paper? Yeah, yeah. I wrote for the pink and and the green and in Northamptonshire at the age of fourteen. That's how I, that's how I started. But but you know, we talk about the characters. Yeah, you know, I I used to live in in Manchester when I was at the Daily Star, and you go in the pub. And you'd have a drink with some of the Manchester United lads because I, I lived in the same. I lived in Hale, which is by Aldringham, and I used to live in the same area. And you go in, and you, you'd you'd have a drink with them, and you'd have a chat, and because they were still part of the community, they were still people that you could talk to, and they they they, they were around. To, today, there is you know you don't get that. You don't get that closeness that you used to get in our time. So you'd see the players out on the pitch. What they were earning probably wasn't very much more than what we were earning. Um, you could have a drink with them. You could talk to them. Today, everything, that their wages is is on a completely different planet to, to what the average person earns. And now you go to you go to have a drink and the, the, the section for the players is, is, is siphoned off. You, people can't get anywhere near them. And do you see them in 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 the pubs on the in the local? Not very often. It's 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 a different kind of thing. And, and I think I think without it getting too too technical or, or whatever, but I think you know players are brought up differently as well. That some of the character in the way players played was probably honed through playing on grass with the with the mates, playing in the schoolyard. Yeah. And yeah. um, like Brian, how, how he started out. You know, before the before the pub on a Sunday, you know, Brian, there there he was, 12, 13, 14 in goals with the with the men having a kick about on the on the Stansted Green before the pub. And I think now where kids go into youth academies and the, and it's bibs and it's cones and it's touches and all the rest of it, where there wasn't the they're, they're not able to express themselves in the way that, that perhaps they did in previous years. And uh, and you, interesting there, Jim, you, you know, you're talking about seeing local people local to the, the, the clubs. And I think possibly the one 
exception in the in the Premier League at the moment, the one character you'd say is 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 Tony Grealish, and there's someone that's playing for the club that he grew up supporting. And uh, you know, there's there is a character on the ball, off the pitch, which doesn't always help him. But but I think he's more in tune with the, the sort of era that that you know Brian played. But, but, and, I mean, I I, I talk to to, to to footballers today, and one or two that I speak to say, well, actually, when I was a kid, I, I didn't support a club because I was I was playing football every weekend from the age of seven, da-da-da, and I didn't used to go to games. And whereupon Kingy used to be standing on the terraces, what you know, watching the matches. And that's how a lot of players, um, you know, they had their heroes and they went, they went to emulate them. And I think there's a lot of players now who start football so young, they're not actually seeing very much live football apart from on, on TV. Yeah, but they're also now, yeah, they've also now, they've all got agents at 14, 15. Yeah. And these agents are giving the parents astronomical sums of money. And I mean astronomical sums of money. You're talking four, five, six hundred thousand pounds. Paying mortgages off and things like yeah. that. Just to, act, just to actually represent this kid. Because if this kid gets his first professional contract, well, then they make that back. And if they move them on, they make it three or fourfold. There are agents, I know, that pay, that are on the percentage with the parents. They give the parents 50% of whatever they make just to represent this kid. It's And it takes everything out of the game. When there you, aren't characters, as we've been discussing. When, you, when, when teams like men... City have an elite under fives, you know that football <laughs> is dead. Sorry, but it, it's dead. It's not, you know, you've got players now what, you know, so much as a leaf blows next to their foot, they go down with a broken metator, you know, metatorsal. But in Brian's era, you'll get an elbow in the head and your, your eye will be swollen up and you'll be carrying on. Um, you know, it, it, it's, it's a different era. I mean, if you were, if you're starting your career now, Brian, um, and obviously not when you did, do you think that you would have made it now? Yeah, I'm sure I would have. I'm sure because I look at what what's playing for England and what's representing our best goalkeepers in this country. And if you tell me that the three or four that are representing our country are the best at this moment in time, and they are the best then we have a definite problem with the goalkeeping position in this country because the way they work, the way they train, and who do, who do they follow? I mean, nearly every goalkeeper in the championship or the premiership is a foreigner um, playing in the first team. And these foreigners usually have their own goalkeeper coaches who they bring with them. Um, and the techniques and the way that they work. Well, I mean, you look at David De Geer and, and somebody who's on three hundred and fifty grand a week, and and um, I feel sure that my ability and my agility and my handling is as good as what is is today. Um, I've said this before. I would love to play today. I would love to play on the pitches. With the, with the different bits of equipment. Um, to be fair, 
when you get these gloves on, it's difficult not to catch a ball. But in our day, you had to learn to catch a ball because you didn't have any gloves. You learn and devised ways of catching the ball. And, you know, the, the first thing they say about keepers in my era was he's got a good pair of hands, you know. Same as with cricketers, great pair of hands. Goalkeepers, great pair of hands. You know, today, it's as though they're looking for somebody who can play as a, an extra centre-half at times. But some of the decision-making that the goalkeepers are making today, I mean, shocking. I mean, and I, I'd love to play it, Dave. Don't get me wrong. I would love to play. I would love to play for the money. But I wouldn't want to play to have that lot as my mates because where do, where do you have contact with them? Because one buys a watch, the other one buys a better watch. One buys a car, another one gets a bigger car. You tell me somebody needs six cars when he's 23 years of age. Can't be right. Right, Brian, I have no doubt in my mind, I have none whatsoever, that if you were playing today at the standard that you played for Millwall, you would be England's goalkeeper. I have absolutely no doubt. When I see the England keepers that we've got today, I have no doubt in my mind that you would be England keeper. Well, I'm... I'll 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 agree and say thanks on that, Jim. But but um, it it was just an era when I played as well where you shook a tree and a goalkeeper fell out. <laughs> it, it really was, you know, and um, it was it it was a great it was a great time. It was a a great way to learn your trade, and we didn't have any goalkeeper coaches. We didn't have any agents. I mean, we looked after ourselves. We trained ourselves. Um, but Brian, you were the last Millwall player, as a Millwall player, to be picked for an England squad. Yeah, not not, not a single Millwall player has been picked for an England squad since, since since you were. And look at the players that you had ahead of you at that time. What what you name the goalkeepers who, who were ahead of you, and you still got picked for an England squad. Yeah. Uh, maybe I was fortunate because some of them were injured. But but I I always thought I was I was battling. Against, against being who I was at the club I was, because you know when you're at Liverpool and and you're as the time QPR and that they always seem to be more attractive clubs to to produce England players than what Millwall was, and whether that was because um, my my first match against Blackpool, I don't know if I think I can remember the report that Dennis follows from the FA had come to that game to see how the crowd behaved. And in the report after the game, in his words, he said that you couldn't fault the Millwall supporters one inch because of their the, the way they support their team and the way they, they, um, they encouraged their team and also respected the supporters. I, it was something after, after the incidents that had happened around Millwall and that he was coming down to check on... And uh, I mean, apart from Alf Ramsey, who from the FA had ever been down the den? For That's it. And Millwall had quite a reputation. When was it? Fifty? When was it? Fifty-eight? Wasn't it? When the? Was it fifty-eight? With the hand grenade? Sixty? No, no, Sixty-eight? Wasn't it? No, that was sixty-five, six season. Yeah. At Brentford. Um, yeah, yeah, Brentford. Yeah. yeah right. But the hand grenade story. 60, so yeah. Sixty-seven was that? Was that not Derek Dugan? Yeah, that was when Derek. You remember when Derek the Dugan team towards the Wolves? And the Millwall supporter come on the pitch 
with the uh, he had a Wolverhampton scarf on, and Duke thought he was a Wolverhampton supporter, and he went over to congratulate the the supporter who was going to congratulate him, and the fellas ended up trying to nut the Duke, and they realised it's a Millwall supporter who's nicked a, a scarf off a Wolves supporter. I mean, although it was funny uh, to think of. You know, it was obviously serious, serious things that went against Millwall. And, and even today, they speak of Millwall supporters in, oh, blimey, Millwall supporters. Um, oh, that's a dodgy place to go, isn't it? But I mean, it ain't a dodgy place to go. Do you have any regrets of your time at Millwall? Anything? Yeah, yeah. Any, any regrets from your time playing with Millwall? Yeah that me and Kitch never represented England in a full international. That would have been the epitome for me, that our hard work would have been rewarded, even if it was against Malta or against Liechtenstein, just to have been centre-half and goalkeeper. You know what, if we had got promoted 71-72, that may well have happened. Yes, possibly. 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 But that's football though, isn't it? That's football and... um, I would not, I would, I don't regret a minute. I, I don't regret the booing. I don't the the abuse of, of what it was at the start, the booing. It made me, it made me a better goalkeeper at the end of the day. And, and for any young player, if you can come through that and keep your head up, but don't drop your head and don't start feeling sorry for yourself. Because if I'd have started feeling sorry for myself at the den, I'd have been finished. No, definitely, 100%. Neil, you've got anything to finish on? Yeah, but if we come up to the modern day, what do you think about Biakowski, our new goal, our, you know, our current number one or number whatever he is? Well, he's got good experience in the English in the English game. Um, I don't like the way as his socks pulled up. Um, I'd have them sorted out for a start. All he needs is a pair of suspenders with them. But going back to the boy himself, he makes great saves, he makes rickets. We've all done that. Um, there was a couple of incidents where he made match-winning saves on, on Saturday and then he made match-losing rickets, one in particular from a corner when it was coming in chest high and he ends up trying to punch it and he punches it straight up in the air, which could have resulted in a goal um, from, from from nothing. But he's, he's saved from the header, um, he's blocked on the line, I mean, was good. And he's got all the makings of being of being a good Millwall goalkeeper. And um, I like him. I've only met him once and uh, he's been very, very respectful and very polite. And, and I'm the same with him. And I, I respect, I respect him for what he, for, for how he's, how he's turned his game around at Millwall. Um, and, uh, I, I still want to see more of him, but I think he's having to make um, saves from from whether it's poor defending or whatever. But um, certainly on the last game I saw, you know, uh, against Cardiff, it was it was a great save he made from the header. Maybe some people would save from my area, you know, we're the photographers, but um, it was still a good save, and so was his block. But. There were a couple of things there where I worry sometimes when the ball's around his feet. But 
again, he's um, he's proved since he's been at Millwall, Player of the Year. He seems to be ending up with Man of the Match nearly every other game. So you can only hold your hands up and say good luck to him and um, just keep that tradition of half-decent goalkeepers. But the only thing what he hasn't kept, sorry, Neil, the only thing he hasn't kept the condition, the same um, tradition with you and Horney, um, or you, Horney and Ford, is that he's got quite thick gloves. I've, I've seen his gloves because he gave them to a, a guy who I was next for a charity event and we were playing with his gloves and they're, they're quite thick. Yeah, well, there again, uh, Mickey, it's, I, I think it's the order of the day. You know, when you see, um, as I, I think I've remarked on this before, Peter Cech brought a pair of gloves out in his latter time at Chelsea. I mean, over £160 for a pair of gloves. I mean, um, they've either got fur in them or, um, or they can undo safes at that money. Yeah, but, you, it, yeah, but you can pay by cheque, so it's OK. Oh. <laughs> there, there, there is one thing I would love to know, though. Right, We all remember Bart's little bit of dribbling at Wickham that presented them with their first their first ever goal in second-tier football. Yeah. Right, Brian, what would Benny Fenton have said to you? Oh, if you had been if you had been caught dribbling like he was, what would Benny have said to you? Well, I, I probably couldn't really say what he would have said on here, but um, I can imagine there would have been. A- oh, you can, you can say exactly if you want to. It's a grown-up show. I'm, I, I'm, I'm not yeah. fast. Listen I, I, to one of our normal shows. I like to be polite, that Mickey. Yeah, you know, I, I know we said it before, and we had a laugh and a joke with a few swear words last time. But to be fair, why take a chance? Why take a chance? Um, and I can imagine Benny saying, your first touch has got to be that ball clearing at least 45, 50 yards because they ain't going to score from there. But the more you dilly-dally with it, like some, like some, I won't, I won't insult the ladies and I won't insult um, whatever, but if you want to mess around with it and invite trouble, you can end up in that situation. But if it's played back to you, just get it down a bit. Listen, that's why you're in goal. You you ain't a fancy down with the ball at your feet. Get it out of the box. You were kitch had some to you as well, wouldn't they? Sorry? Yeah, you know, Kitch wouldn't have been backwards in coming forwards, would he? Well, I don't think any of them would have been, to be honest. I mean, it was bad enough that you had to pick it up. Um, of course, I went through the whole the whole thing of goalkeeping. You know, pick it up, you're gonna get barged. Pick it up, you can roll it. Um, pick it up. You have to, uh, what was it, um, four-step rule or something like that you had and, yeah. you know, and, and and all this kind of stuff. I mean, I got booked at Birmingham City, not at that game, not at there, unfortunately, but in the 60s, for marking the pitch. I got a yellow card for marking the pitch. And the referee was quite famous at the time called Harry New. I don't know whether you remember him, Jim, or you gentlemen. Yeah. But... The worst thing was Jim Area had already marked the pitch. So when I went out second half, I was just cleaning up the mark that was already there. And Harry proceeded to come down, and we're all wondering what he's going to do, and he's gone, you've just marked the pitch. I said, no, I didn't. It was already done. He said, I'm going to give you a yellow card for lying. For lying? He said, I saw you do it. I said, no, you didn't. He said, you were doing it. Yellow card. 
for marking the pitch. And thankfully, that rule went out after half a season. I mean, it was ludicrous because all the goalkeepers marked the pitch. The centre of the goal, centre of the 18-yard line, six-yard line, line with the post, line with the post. You just make those little marks and that was your angles and that was your guidelines where you worked on. I'll tell you what, Kingy, I I, I love, as you know, watching old films of, of football and there's one you've got to see. It's Norwich City versus uh, Sheffield Wednesday in the FA Cup. Gordon Bolland is playing for Norwich. And I think it's about 1966 or something like that. Anyway, Kevin Kevin Keen, uh, Keelan, the, the Norwich keeper, who you had many a battle with. Yeah, good he's goalkeeper. Great goalkeeper. And he gets the ball and he starts to bounce it. You had to use to bounce the ball, you remember? Yeah. Right? So he goes to bounce the ball. But it's just mud. It goes to bounce it. It goes splat. And the Sheffield Wednesday bloke says, oh, thanks very much, and, and yeah. tucks it in. You've got to see this. It would just never, ever happen today. We, we played Norwich one year, and before we went out on the pitch, somebody said to the POS or, or to Keith Wellner, get the goalkeeper at it. And that was Kevin Keelan. If you get in front of him when he's got the ball and – Harry, Harry used to have a little thing where he used to go and stand in front of the goalkeepers and they had the ball while it was in their hands, you know. He used to put his head down on the ball as though he was messing about. Anyway, he'd done this to Kevin Kevin Keelan and Kevin's got the ump and hit Harry in the face with the ball because Harry's gone down as though he's been hit with a jackhammer and it's a penalty. <laughs> of course, all hell breaks loose and Harry's lying on the floor laughing his head off, laughing his head off. Kevin Keelan's gone bloody hairless by this time, you know, <laughs> penalty. <laughs> I think we won there 3-0 or something. Um, yeah, that doesn't happen very often. No, that doesn't happen. We got Not nowadays. <laughs> so, look, we're, we're, we're bring this um, to an end. And, and, and again, I appreciate you. Another two hours of your time, um, Brian. It's absolutely fantastic. And, uh, you know, uh, and I know that there's, there's more in this. Um, but, look, Mark, Jim, why are fans going to buy this book? Uh, well, they they can they can go online and get it from uh, get get online from uh, littlehell dot com. Littlehellbooks uh, dot com. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I was forgetting the name of my own company, littlehellbooks dot com, <laughs> and uh, you 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 can actually buy it online there because it won't be out in the shops uh, before Christmas. We haven't got time. We 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 had to half kill ourselves just to get it ready for Christmas. So it can only be got uh, online. Um, and I, I, I tell you, I, I'm, I'm so proud of this book. It's the first book I've produced regarding Millwall uh, since Lines of the South. And w- w- I just love it. I, I've got to admit, I, I, I am so proud of this book. Mark, why, why, why should fans buy it, Mark? Well, for, for me, it, it's... You know, clearly the Lions King, Millwall, first and foremost, a Millwall legend with that many stories. I have to say, we we, we spent three days, didn't we, Brian? Yeah. Talking football, just talking football solid. And then we were partway through and I, I rang Jim and said, listen, Jim, we're, we're going to have to, we, we, we just cannot fit Brian's life into one book. And we, so we had to draw a, a line at the end of management. So we've got Brian as a player, Brian as a manager. The stories for Millwall are legion, 
uh, or, you know, you've heard him tonight, you've heard him before as a, as a raconteur, tales from, from those times. But as we've discussed tonight, more than Millwall, it's of a time, of an era, a golden age, really, for English football, when the game was closer to the fans, the fans were closer to the players. It was something which, which really, you know, in the wake of 1966 as well, this was a time when football really defined our country. And um, I would like to think that for people, Brian's age who, who watched him as a player, for people my age who grew up as uh, who grew up idolising players of that era, and also for those that came after, the younger fans to to actually get a, a feel for what it was like then. Um, almost almost a, a different country, almost a different sport. I think another great thing about the book is the fact that, okay, we're talking about Kitch and we're talking about Harry Cripps and we're talking about Gordon Bolland, but the book also takes with it Jimmy Greaves. It, it, it brings in Yashin, you know, Yashin. Um, all the people, all the players, Eusebio, players who touch Brian's life, you know, as, as footballers, and, and he ended up playing against. This is the amazing thing. And it's 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 the it's it's the extraordinary umbrella, you know, uh-huh. and just how much he's covered in this. And we've, we've tried we've, we've tried to, to to almost wander down avenues, just as it, just to, as you said before that that tried to get across that this was a conversation, and 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 as much as possible, Brian is is verbatim in this book, yeah, you know, where it's possible to get Brian's actual words in, they're in there intact, yeah, and and. And hopefully, as I say, reflects how the book came about for us. That I, I got off at, at Putney Bridge Station and uh, was looking for an ex-footballer. He was looking for a journalist, looking for a, an ex-footballer, and uh, we spotted each other. And, and straight away, we, we went for a cup of tea, just started talking football, and then and then a pub lunch. We didn't stop for three days, did we, Brian? And then no, we didn't. More conversations over the phone, and uh, and then I went out to Norway. We had another three days in Norway, and and. And hopefully all, all these conversations that we had and going down different avenues and going, oh, bloody hell, I remember him. I'd forgotten about him. And, and what did he get up to and what did he do there? I mean, I'm, my, the first FA Cup final I remember was 1981 with Tommy Hutchison scoring at both ends for Man City. And then Brian played with him at Coventry. Yeah. And, uh, no, listen, I, I, I agree. I think, you know... There's something, there's something here, I think, it's, what we're trying to get across is for fans of all ages... That they exactly. will take something from this. We've done. We've obviously the three goalkeepers, and and this will be um, uh, the book. Um, loads of sales, and oh, hopefully mine will be in the post, signed all by three of you. So, um, but look, thank you very much for your time tonight. It's been absolute pleasure to be able to talk to you, Brian, for you know four, four and a bit hours in in total over the two shows. Um, and, and really appreciate it. And I can't wait till you come over into the UK um, to do the things, obviously, what you're looking to plan with around the book. Uh, and it would be good to shake your hand and, and see you and have a beer with you. It would be so rude of me, and it will be the question on every fan's lips before we do shut this down. Jim, Lions of the South, part two. When's it coming? And is it going to come? Um there might Put you right on the spot, mate. I had to. <laughs> I, I won't be updating it simply because I don't have time. I, I you know, because y- you probably know I spend half my time 
not in COVID time, traveling around the world, you know, doing my shows around the world and so on and so forth. So I'm barely in the country. I just don't have time. What we are looking at the possibility of doing is bringing out Lions of South in an electronic form. So, and maybe I might do some work on the, on the first section of, 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 of the pre-war stuff because of the research I've been doing over the years. But I, to that man I, I, just, well. I just won't have time to do anything from 88. Anything with a war, speak to Neil. Um, he's got, he's done loads. He's done the Remembrance Show with us the other week. If you haven't listened to that and you're listening to this, there was a Remembrance where we remembered all the uh, players who sadly lost their lives during World War One and Two. So look, you've gone through four episodes now. Hopefully, you've listened to Brian King, you've listened to Brian Horn, you've listened to David Forbes. You've had a real, real insight into the Millwall legend that is Brian King. Um, if you've enjoyed these shows and these two as well, if you've enjoyed these shows, you can get the book. Obviously, there will be a show link uh, in the show links um, after this show in the notes. Look on there. We'll put the link in there. Click on the link, get it. The book is out this Thursday, the 26th of November. Um, it's, a, you know, in the chapters, what me and Neil have seen, they're fantastic. They're really good. It is a must read. And it'll be an ideal present for any Millwall fan out there. So, look, you know our socials. You know what we do. Thank you very much for listening. And we'll see you again next time. Thank you. So get new friends, make sure Progressive's one of them, and get coverage today for as little as $100 a year. Do I want to feel the wind in my hair? Guilty as charged. <laughs> oh, seriously, let's ride on your boat. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and affiliates annual premium for basic liability policy not available in all states. The TalkSport Fan Network is proudly teaming up with Free for Mental Health Awareness Week this year. We understand that the journey as a supporter isn't always smooth sailing, but rest assured you're not alone. There's a vast network of fellow fans who share your passion and may be experiencing similar challenges. Honesty is key in any relationship. If your friend asks you how you are feeling, tell them honestly. If you're going through a difficult time, let them know. Opening up about how you are feeling can really make a difference. After all, they are your mates for a reason. Let's all take a moment to talk more than football. Away days are great, but there's nothing quite like playing at home. The same goes for McDonald's. Maximise your home ground advantage with McDelivery. Order now on the McDonald's app. At participating restaurants, 18 plus, serving times, delivery fee and terms apply. See mcdonalds.com. This podcast is proud to be part of the TalkSport Fan Network. TalkSport. Powered by fans.